Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. And hello again. Thank you for tuning in to Ambassadors at Large. Uh, this is episode 27, and we're going to talk about Trump's foreign policy. And uh, in order to do that, uh, I'm delighted to welcome back uh, to the podcast for a second or third, depending on how you want to want to count it. Uh, time. Uh, Michael Davies, welcome back to the podcast. Last seen on episode or heard on episodes 21 and 22, uh, 20 and 21. Why doesn't the U.S. win any wars anymore? Uh, Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So uh, the reason that I thought that it would be a good idea to sort of check up on, on American foreign policy now is because we have a new president who's a little bit different than previous presidents that we've had. It's <laughs> <laughs> putting a model. And both of us kind of going in, not, not like super optimistically, but, but mm. sort of had this vague idea that in a strange way, uh, the Trump administration could potentially be a useful course corrective to the way American foreign policy was going. And and I've, we've both been kind of rudely, uh, I would say, disappointed, if not surprised, um, about what's actually <laughs> happened. But but we both sort of had the sense that something was wrong. And I think a lot of people in the American public had a sense that something was wrong, which is one of the reasons why so many people voted for Trump in the first place. Um, Absolutely. So, so yeah, like... Uh, the, the way you described this to me, we were, we were exchanging messages before the podcast, and you said mm-hmm. Trump sold himself as a corrective to the blob. What, mm-hmm. what did you mean by that? Well, um, with the blob, I mean, at the moment, it's quite possible that that might be the longest lasting, lasting aspect of Barack Obama's legacy. He's giving a very particular name, a very useful and a very um, descriptive name of the D.C. foreign policy commentariat. Um, I think it was actually uh, Ben Rhodes who called it. Ben Rhodes, but but, but, you know, they they called it together. Um, So just just the fact that they've been saying uh, and doing the same thing over and over again for years at a time. Um, President Obama even pointed this out when he was pushing the Iran deal. It's like the same people who sold Iraq are now trying to work against the Iran deal, and they've been doing this on multiple other things, Um, sort of pushing ISIS, like writing one do something article after another on Syria and things like that. Um, we have and, to we have to clarify what a do something article is because it's it's, okay. it's one of the classic sort of uh, just just hair tearing uh, tropes of the foreign policy uh, foreign yes. policy uh, literati, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, one in, I remember in particular. Um, I think it was in foreign policy. It could have been well, there were multiple in foreign policy. But um, people like Elliot Cohen, they would write these great little articles, you know, 750 words type thing, beautifully written, all the rest of it, analyzing the situation. And then just at the very last second, you know, in the last two sentences say, it's time for the president to do something. And you're just left there sitting going, well, what? What are my options? What are we looking at? Um, and it just, over and over again, you see that, let's do something, you know, the, the same thing came up in, in Bosnia in the 90s, before um, 9-11 with bin, bin Laden, as well as, you know, after 9-11, going into Afghanistan, going into Iraq, all the rest of it, let's do something, and no one ever really know what, or they'd offer these sort of tropes or expectations of what would happen that were absolute nonsense, they, they, these people had no real understanding of what was going on on the ground, 
what was happening um, in these countries at the time, and usually they were doing it through the, some very narcissistic American-centric um, prisms in which they were offering, if they did offer anything, but uh, do no, a do something article is basically someone saying we must act now, um, but offering nothing on what to actually do. Yeah, let alone or, or what does they, the end point mean? Yeah, if if they do offer something, it's it's basically a the uh, what I I call means creep. You know, like mission creep is mm. when you uh, when you. Uh, expand the mission to do progressively more and more things from what it was originally designed to do. Means creep mm-hmm. is when you you add on more and more means to do the same thing yes. that isn't working. So it's like, yeah, exactly. sanctions didn't work, let's do tougher sanctions. Let's do <laughs> airstrikes, let's do targeted, you know, like this kind mm-hmm. of thing. Let's, mm-hmm. let's you know, have like limited, you know, special forces. Let's send like yeah. some ground troops, but not too many. Let's, help, mm-hmm. you know, like this sort of thing. And like more and more resources being thrown at the same problem to try and get a different actor who has a different set of priorities to mm-hmm. do something that they don't want to do, ultimately mm-hmm. leading to like you know a hundred thousand troops in Iraq. So yeah, exactly. Um, um, which is a distinct possibility at this point as well. Yeah. The, um, the, the, this. Yeah. The, yeah. This, this is the. This is what. What. Uh, Rhodes and the Obama administration in general referred to as as the blob. This sort of yeah. sense that that you know if, if we do if we do just a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, a, a, and use just a little bit more American power, we can cow uh, whoever the person is or group is that's doing stuff that we don't want to do into mm-hmm. doing uh, what we do want them to do or or not mm-hmm. doing anything. Uh, mm-hmm. As if no one else on the board has agency, and, and that's yes. that's kind of the standard. And it's particularly associated with the neoconservatives, but not mm-hmm. exclusively by any stretch. No, no, like uh, liberal internationalists certainly uh, guilty of it. Anne Marie Slaughter prior to uh, Libya and things like that definitely guilty of it. But uh, it's also the belief that um, just enough firepower um, will force an end, and everyone will start you know, dancing around the Maypole and become Jacksonian Democrats and things like that overnight. And it's, it's complete nonsense, and it always has been, but it just, it keeps happening. Um, and like you said, this is a very good reason why a lot of people voted for Trump in the first place, is because they were sick of this nonsense. Um, and, and, for, from, and for Obama, I think. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I think it's no coincidence that, that the last two presidents uh, that we've had were both uh, both thought, or at least in, in hindsight in the case of Trump, but mm. actually at the time in the case of Obama, that the Iraq war was a terrible idea. I think the mistake that that we made was that we sort of hoped that this would just be about you know a repudiation of expertise, of so-called expertise about people who thought the Iraq war was a good idea, and instead mm-hmm. it was a repudiation of all expertise about any topic, so like climate mm-hmm. scientists, you mm-hmm. know, like this sort of thing. So it was well, much more It was much more of an out-and-out rebellion against anyone mm-hmm. who has any expertise about anything than mm-hmm. just <laughs> than yeah. just a repudiation of, of, of a foreign policy establishment that had become too hawkish in the world. Mm. And that's uh, understandable. I mean, uh, I mean, if you watch enough uh, right-wing news of various sorts, you know climate change is a hoax. So therefore, of course, um, uh, you know, you're not going to believe the experts. But, you know, look at the global financial crisis. Um, Those people got away with bloody murder collapsing the global economy. Um, But they were considered the, um, you know, the, the, the seers of our time. And, of course, everything they did was complete nonsense and it, it collapsed everything. And so those people who don't particularly like expertise in the first place 
kind of turned on them, but also didn't in various other ways. Um, but yeah, basically, experts have been failing for a very long time um, in America, and the blob is just sort of a very um, uh, graphic and very um, open and very obvious um, uh, symbol of that of that generic failure of expertise in general. I mean, I, I, I sort of have to, I mean, because I know a lot of people who do foreign policy for a living, and I have tremendous respect for almost everyone I meet. And that's one of the that's one of the reasons why I like the principle of the blob is mm. because it's it's really, you know, there there are specific, you know, there are specific people out there where, the, you know, particularly in the neoconservative wing, some of the more more sort of hardline folks, where I, where I, I, I fundamentally disagree with the way that they see the world and their prescriptions for it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on the whole, most of the people that I meet uh, I, I'm really impressed by, and yet <laughs> the mm-hmm. policy prescriptions that are put forth, accepted, and then acted upon uh, are, are just they, they. It's almost like they have a life of their own. How is this mm-hmm. possible? How can so many smart people uh, yield policies that are like you know the definition of insanity? <laughs> Doing the same thing over. Well, uh, I mean that's the the nature of the blob. I mean that's why it's, it's an amorphous entity that doesn't really have any defined lines and is very hard to kill. Um, so the, the, that's definitely part of it, as well as just the, the ability to get inside the blob means you have to become the blob as well. So you're um, in order to become accepted, just like in any society, you have to share its norms and, and its values and speak uh, the same discourse, at least, if not necessary language. Um, and so by doing that, you know, it replicates itself over and over again. The second part of that, though, is um, the term that I use, and I actually took this from business theory, is called the execution gap. Now, a lot of people want to execute all these ideas, and then some of them are very good, but the ability to execute them doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in um, the military, it doesn't exist in non-military, whether or not you're talking about State Department, Agriculture, uh, Treasury Department, things like that. Uh, the, the ability to do it doesn't actually exist. Or if it does, it create, it, you, you have to do something immense, some sort of um, organizational, uh, sort of ad hoc organizational innovation, or any other um, possible bureaucratic nonsense, or even just get lucky. But the ability to do the things, even if they do give more than a let's do something answer or um, prescription or something like that, the ability to do it doesn't exist. So uh, instead of taking away, understanding that fact and thinking through, can this be executed, uh, yes or no, and then being like, well, I shouldn't do it in the first place, I shouldn't even try it, they just keep on saying, let's keep doing this, let's keep doing this, let's keep doing this, and then when something fails, they pay no attention to why it failed. R- Rory Stewart had an amazing analogy about this, which I, I may, I, I love so much that I might, and I apologize if I've done this before, mentioned it mm. on a previous <laughs> episode mm. of this podcast, but uh, he said that b- being a foreign policy advisor is like... Uh, someone coming up to you and and saying uh, I've decided to drive my car over a cliff uh, should I wear a seatbelt and then yeah. you say well I don't think you should d- drive your car over a cliff and they respond well that part's already been decided but should yeah. I wear a seatbelt <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> 
uh, no, uh, you that, know, and really then you good. say, well, you should probably wear a seatbelt if you're going to do yeah. it. I mean, don't do exactly. it. Exactly. Right? And then they say, well, we talked to foreign policy expert Rory Stewart, and he says mm-hmm. we should wear a seatbelt mm-hmm. while driving over mm-hmm. a cliff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so Trump gets into office, and you know, it's it's this drain the swamp idea, mm-hmm. and it seems like he's going to, you know, hire a bunch of outsiders and he brings in people like Bannon and Gorka who have not been mm-hmm. part of the foreign policy, who have just not been part of the blob because no, no one's uh, given them any credibility. And all of a sudden they're running the reins of government, but that's not, those aren't the only people that he brought in. Um, no, but like really quickly on Gorka, he actually has held multiple positions. Like he was at NDU, he held a like the National Defense University. He held a, he held a position at the um, Marine Corps University. Uh, he's written articles with people like David Kilcullen uh, and others, in like okay. um, multi-authored articles and things like that. So he's not a swamp or blob creature, but he's been attached to it and he's gotten funding for saying what he's been saying. Uh, and that that's important as well. Like he he might be on the very outer edges, but um, he has not been shunned, which is why when people like Mia Bloom and others come out and just sort of being like, "Who is this person? I've never heard of them before." Um, he's been around in, in um, the the blob circles at least for a while, but he's maintained the the same stuff that he's been saying that now everyone knows about him what he's been saying. Um, but he's been on that line for quite a number of years. But but yeah, so let's but let's talk about about the kind of the the I mean the thing about about a lot of these guys is that they are they are on an extreme and mm-hmm. they're they're definitely not you know they're, they're not people who are like intimately associated with being the architects of the Iraq war for oh, example or, or you know carrying it out from a military perspective or from a political perspective you know they're not the wolfowitzes of the world um no but uh trump has brought in a bunch of military guys mm-hmm. and it does kind of raise the question of i mean is this like a team of rivals thing or is this sort of like a a repudiation of the neocons but not of you know like the, the 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 strategic you know civilian thinkers but not the 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 military brass who actually carried out the iraq war basically saying like is this the beginning of like a stabbed in the back theory where it's like the military guys were were unbeatable it was their it was their civilian leaders who sent them into stupid conflicts and you know had them fight unwinnable wars and were the so-called experts who ruined everything Mm -hmm. uh who are the uh who are who we're turning on now you took the words right out of my mouth um, this is definitely the beginnings of a stabbed-in-the-back narrative. Um, particularly, you see, would have seen things like um, with McChrystal and Petraeus, um, the uh, what was it? Uh, heroic restraint, um, the, things like that during the uh, surge into Afghanistan. So basically saying, let's not drop a bomb on a village. Let's just wait it out and see where the guys go. Um, or let's not fire back indiscriminately at a multi- at a patchwork of houses. Let's wait to find out where the bad guys really are and then attack that. Um, that was just derided significantly in right-wing press for, you know, through things like Bannon and Corker and things like that. And they were saying that because of this stuff, we can't win these wars. And you win wars by killing the other man, usually man, uh, the other people, um, just with indiscriminate force until they give up. And so that's why, again, the civilian um, advisors who recommend all these wars that were stupid, 
Um, they then undercut the big, strong, stereotypical uh, military guys from fighting it the way they should have been fighting it. And it's complete nonsense. Um, Mattis, Flynn, McMaster and Petraeus and Kelly, these people are all equally responsible for the failures in Iraq and Afghanistan as well as Yemen, um, Syria, all the rest of it. These were the guys in charge. And they screwed up multiple ways, multiple times. They may be very intelligent people. They are very intelligent people. They're very capable. But they're also products of the institutions that brought them um, to the, 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 the spaces that they are now. But they get a free pass because the military is so revered. Um, it's, and that, that allows for a stab in the back um, narrative to come about. And, but that's why Trump gives them a pass because his supporters give them a pass, um, but the civilians, and therefore they get to tag with people like Obama and all the rest of it, it it's an un, uh, you know what uh, Elliot Cohen calls an unequal dialogue in strategy between military and um, policy, but that unequal dialogue can lead to a stab in the back. Um, legend, precisely, and that, that is very dangerous, because it just means, as we just said, the military forces keep, to get, keep doing what they've been doing it never works, but nobody cares. Let's just keep throwing money at it, and like that's a problem. Yeah, and we'll get to Trump's proposed defense increase in in just mm. a little bit. But it's interesting because I, I, thinking about it, I I find myself accepting about half of the stabbed in the back theory, <laughs> which mm. is the part. I mean, I I look at at McChrystal and Petraeus and these guys who were practicing population centric counterinsurgency, and my thought is population centric counterinsurgency is if you're going to do counterinsurgency, that's mm-hmm. the best yes. way to do it. You yes. know, unless you're willing to commit genocide, which we're not, yes. and which, I, which I'm glad about uh, that we're yeah. not. Um, but, the Sri Lankan way of war. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, so so I, I consider these guys to be incredible, you know, incredibly talented and, and smart military mm-hmm. tacticians who did the best they could basically mm-hmm. being assigned to do something that cannot be done, which is... You know, well, with, this this you is know. part of the problem, though, is that um, particularly for the Afghan surge decision, they, they've done studies on this. I was uh, a part of some of these in, in various ways. Um, they never offered uh, President Obama the option of what happens if our policy assumptions don't work. They just pushed forward with, let's do this counterinsurgency thing. Okay, we'll accept 10,000 less um, soldiers. We, we can move forward with that. But they never um, understood what would happen if it turns out that, which exactly what did happen, that Karzai is the problem, the Afghan constitution is the problem, the capital T-H-E problem, um, and that the government, the Afghan government, was the problem. Yeah, it's they, a, it's That a, was never brought up. And like that was their job. That was their problem. That was their thing because they were the theater commanders and they never brought that up. They never dealt with it. Yeah, it, and so it, it, and so, it, like they they just implemented an operational campaign plan um, without the political side of it ever being properly addressed in the manner which it should. And that's why I say that this is the problem with the stabbed in the back theory is that it um, lets the military go for their problems that were their problems in the first place, and because they never dealt with those problems, um, failure was likely. And the not only that, but therefore the policymaker can't make uh, an appropriate decision, can't weigh the factors. But, and so by them never bringing up these sort of political problems, 
um, things were just sort of swept under the rug. It also, I mean, there's also the classic thing, and I think you sort of saw a little bit of this in 2009 when, when the Obama administration was debating what to do with Afghanistan, where the military comes and repeatedly gives these these set of policy options that are basically like, you know, we do nothing, Taliban win, we, mm-hmm. we leave, Taliban win, we send more troops, Taliban lose, victory. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so it's like, which of those three options are you going to take? Yeah, and uh, we sent more troops, and the Taliban are winning again. Well, they, they were, were winning when when, uh, when we sent them more troops, but they just kind of held back a little bit, and now they're gaining more and more ground. Um, so, so, you know, they, they, there was the report that they took Sangin, but people on the ground in Sangin um, immediately turned around and said, "No, no, 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 nothing, nothing like that's happening. It's still tenuous, but um, Sangin hasn't fallen." to um, the Taliban. And now that's important because if Sangin falls, it means Kandahar will fall very quickly after that. And at that point, Talibanistan exists as a geographical entity. Yeah, and, and it's like, we, and we've been doing this for for 16, 16 years. years now. Yeah. Uh, and I think every, until about 2010, every single year there was the annual... 2000 and fill in the blank, an important mm-hmm. year, a vital year for Afghanistan. I think mm-hmm. they just sort of stopped writing that article after about 2010 or 2011. It just fell off the map, but it's, it's, yep. I mean, it's still the same basic principle. It's like we can keep, I, I, because actual people are dying, I hate this term, but it's, 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 it's an effective, you know, parable mowing the lawn. We can yes. keep doing this and keep mm-hmm. maintaining a military posture there and keep killing bad guys. Uh, mm-hmm. And the bad guys will recruit more people, mm-hmm. and they will have cross-border sanctuary, and they'll retreat there, mm-hmm. and they'll reload, and they'll come back, and the war will go on, and it could just go mm-hmm. on forever because yeah. we've we've set ourselves an unwinnable goal. That doesn't, I don't know. Um, to me, that doesn't well, mean that our military is incompetent. It's I mean, just that we 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 are trying to do things that are just you know structurally not possible with a country like Afghanistan, given where it is, given the the state of things there. Well, it is actually possible. Like I said, if the Afghan constitution is the problem, rewrite the Afghan constitution. If members of the government in Afghanistan are the problem, you can replace them and you can replace them in their area. That said, um, like Holbrook was, I think, correct in his assumption that if we actually negotiated a ceasefire and then a peace treaty with the Taliban, um, they could have put down arms in 2009-2010. Now, that would have meant seeding, sort of semi-seeding southern Afghanistan to the Taliban, but the agreement with them then would have been, you get to control that, but there's still Afghan government personnel in that region, and you can't mess with them, and you cannot uh, hold any foreign fighters in your area, otherwise we come back and start, you know, you know, things hit the fan again um, from day one, just like they did before. Um, that That is perfectly feasible, and Thousands of people could have been saved their lives, and um, uh, you know Afghanistan would be in a lot different situation. But because there's no one really making that argument, and in particular there's no one in power who's making that argument and doing it in that in that way, um, you know we are where we are. Now, at the same time, like you just said, we can mow the lawn. But again, the Taliban have been taking significant territory while we've been mowing the lawn. So are we really mowing it, or are we just like taking a little bit off the edge, at the very like at the very top of the grass? Um, so, and, and like and that's the moment you know you've pretty much lost. 
yeah. as well. It's when mowing the lawn no longer has the effect that you intended to have. So looking at what what Trump could have done coming in with this mm. this problem, um, one thing, I mean, from my perspective, I was sort of hoping that, because he's coming in with this sort of America first ideology, and I was sort mm. of hoping that this would be kind of a useful course corrective to a sort of over-expansionist American policy where we had taken it upon mm-hmm. ourselves to do things that were just not structurally possible because other actors yes. in the world have agency and resent being, mm-hmm. being uh, uh, you know, occupied, for example. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that we could basically have a, a more, not withdraw from the world completely, but have a, a posture that was less uh, aggressively seeking monsters to destroy. And I, yes. I sort of hoped that that's, I, I, I did not, I will say, I did not vote for Trump. I did not think he would be a good president. But I hoped <laughs> that's neither, what he would and do. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, well, like, that's not what he's that, done. Uh, a lot of people were saying that uh, America is retreating from the world because we didn't bomb Syria. Like, that was it. We did, you know, America is trading, uh, retreating, Obama is retreating because we didn't bomb Syria. And that was the only evidence that they really had, as well as the fact that Obama didn't want to be doing these types of things. He was sick of it. Um, and we did bomb Syria. And, we just didn't bomb the uh, yeah, side parts of Syria. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and again, like, this is a blob thing. Unless you do exactly what they say, the most extremist elements... Um, do exactly what you say. You're uh, retreating. You're an isolationist. You're evil, and you're siding with Hitler, um, which is a very blobbish thing to do. But yeah, like Trump said. Well, well, Trump was contradictory. I mean, in just about everything, he's contradictory. But in this, in particular, he said, "We're going to win every single war, but we're going to rebuild America." Well, you can do both those things, but it's going to cost you. Um, you can win the war in against ISIS, um, but you're going to have to do things radically different. And just as I said with Afghanistan, if you, you would need to rewrite the Iraqi constitution. You'd need to um, create a political space for the Sunnis to control their own land. You basically have to let the, um, the codes go in a different way, and you have to rebuild a social contract for Syria that's self-sustainable. Nobody's offered that. Um, definitely not Trump. I don't think he or any of his major advisors are even capable of thinking about something like that. Yeah, it's, but it, and, and again, we, this is the, the the contradiction. It's um, you know, you, you want to make America great, and you want to walk away from a, a lot of these expansionist policies, but you want to win wars at the same time. And like this sort of goes back to again the execution gap problem. Now, um, it, and uh, like I said, this is the contradiction of Trump. <laughs> in so many ways. So it's also what's been running through American foreign policy for the longest time. You can do so many things with the resources that America has, but it's the population doesn't particularly want to unless there's sort of an urge to with some great happening like September 11, um, and then they don't really want to pay for it afterwards either. Um, but in order to achieve these goals that they begin, they support, um, Things have to be very, very different. And it kind of gets to, I was, I was speaking to a friend in, for the past couple of years, it's that the American people have never sort of accepted their role in the world. They love being powerful, but they don't like paying for it. Um, 
And I think the contradictions of Trump perfectly align with that identity. Um, You can be, and I think America should be, at least for the um, foreseeable future, provided Trump doesn't just ruin everything, um, should remain the center of the international system. But America needs to start paying for that. It also needs um, forces to be able to maintain that um, centrality. But again, it has to pay for that. And so... Go. It it also strikes me, and part of this is just Trump's personality, but mm. also, I mean, this this anecdote that just came out the day that we're recording this podcast mm. that Trump presented Angela Merkel with a three hundred yes. billion euro bill for for mm. underpaying NATO really sums yeah. up his view of the world as a very sort mm-hmm. of mercantile, transactional, what's in it for us kind of foreign yeah. policy. Uh, and also his, his view of NATO and also just him, him as a, as a deal maker, like how can I get the best deal and screw over these other people? And, yeah. you, know, you know, and if, if they're not paying me, you know, the heck with them, what's, what's, what's yeah. the use of this, this anyway? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I like part, yeah, part of that's him. But part of that, I think, is is what you're hitting on, which is this idea that that we want, you know, we we want to to be able to do anything that we want to in, in the international stage and stop anyone who's doing <laughs> anything we we don't want to. Uh, but we don't want to be the world's policeman. Uh, we certainly yes. don't want to pay for being the world's policeman, and we're better no. that that no one else uh, is is you know carrying their fair weight and spending two percent of their mm-hmm. their uh, uh, GDP on defense like they're supposed to in NATO. Uh, that, yeah. you know, that, that, that it's our nuclear weapons and our soldiers who are like bailing out the South Koreans and mm-hmm. Japanese. You know, this is not how it actually is, but this is the perception. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, a couple of brigades in South Korea is really the only thing that stops um, North Korea from crossing the line. Yeah, yeah. there's unlike you know what is it? South Korea has what one million, one point five million uh, soldiers under arms. Um, yeah, like I, I prefer the term with Trump extractionist foreign policy. Yeah. Um, uh, who was it? There was someone who wrote in, I think he's at Brookings, he wrote a really great article in Politico about Trump's 19th century foreign policy. And the, that's a really great title because it's the 19th century. It's that, you know, things happened in the 19th and the 20th and now into the 21st century, Why? which is why we believe certain things about the international system, about how... Um, countries should deal with one another. There were really, really bad things, and we all came together and decided, no, we're not going to do that anymore, Um, which is why we have the Geneva Conventions, which is why we have the UN and all these things. Things happened in history, um, which is why we decided not to be like that. And so Trump's return to that is... That's one reason why it's so scary. Now, a lot of people don't put it in those terms. They just say it's scary in general. But it's scary because it is so um, <laughs> fundamentalist. It's like trying to go back to a golden age. Yeah. Um, and in her, his in particular, it's you know it's ethno nationalistic in in, um, in its identity politics. It's sort of defining who is American and who is not, and it's usually by skin color uh, and a few other ways. Uh, at the same time, though. If he handed every single, just like he did with Merkel, handed every single member of NATO who was underpaying for defense a um, uh, a cost sheet for NATO, um, it would probably work out to the same amount of money that these countries have bought in U.S. debt over time. 
Mm-hmm. And I would actually love some to see if someone would actually work that through. But uh, you know, when you and I had this conversation today about Trump handing over the the, the invoice, well, supposedly handing over the invoice for three hundred billion, I went and checked it out. And Germany currently holds holds about sixty five billion dollars worth of U.S. Treasury debt. They could easily just dump that immediately, and then maybe even hand that bug. You know, if, if things really come to a head hand that over to um, the Trump administration and said, well, here's part of your money, but now you also have a run on their currency. Because if one country does that, then a lot of other European countries will do the same thing. Yeah. So, like, um, uh, Dan Dresner wrote a really great article on that this is the one of the subtle and... Um, not covert, but not overt at the same time, but sort of the agreement between the United States and the rest of the world and the international system. If you buy out debt when, by, by the U.S.'s debt when they're doing a defense buildup to maintain the integrity of the international system, other actors who might not want to put that much skin in the game um, buys out debt. And that's how, like, that, that's how the system keeps running. Like that, it's it's kind of like um, banks pooling your um, your income to loan it out so you somebody else can buy a house. Like that that that's basically the way it works. Is like the the way the money keeps flowing is that the allies buy all the money, uh, but buy the debt um, with their own treasury bonds. Oh, sorry, with their own um, um, uh, budgets, so they don't have to invest in defense because they know America will come to their aid. But at the same time, American knows will come to their their aid because they hold their debt, and so it's it's that sort of agreement now. And like I said, so if Trump really wants this three hundred billion, the easiest way is for them just to dump U.S. Treasury stocks. Of course, if that happens, the U.S. goes into default, <laughs> and, this, and everything yeah. comes crashing down. Uh, and and this is, I mean, that's that's sort of one way that that you know allies help each other and then there's yeah. there's also the way of like standing with each other on on things where there are shared values and this is one of the mm-hmm. things where i i think people underestimated uh the extent to which trump was a departure i mean this is this is a person who has not uttered the word human rights i think in his life <laughs> the, yeah the the uh, you know, or if it is, it's only a bit about himself. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> or, or Ivanka. <laughs> Our human yes, rights were violated yes. by, by Nordstrom. Um, <laughs> but, um, oh, that's got to be in an article somewhere. <laughs> I, um, th- this is a real sea change in terms of what the U.S. stands for. I mean, uh, uh, there's been a lot of talk about the possible collusion with Russia, and uh, you know we 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 have yet to find out the extent of that. But the the clear it's getting more and more likely every day, though. Yeah, but to me, I've always felt that one doesn't actually need that, although that it might be there. But one doesn't actually mm-hmm. need that to explain uh, Trump's clear admiration for Putin. I think Putin really no. the way he runs Russia, the way he sort of mm-hmm. takes what he wants in the international system, like mm-hmm. Crimea or you know uh, Iraq's oil in the case of Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and, I mean, let's not even begin to discuss the suppression of dissidents at home. But, but I, yeah. I, I really think that, that, that as, as a strong man who acts in, in the national interest of his, of his you know, uh, national state, that mm-hmm. is Trump's idea of what a leader should be. And that's, Absolutely. And, and, and in terms of the values that Russia espouses, like what's in it for us and bullying neighbors instead of... of 
having a, an alliance of shared values. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way he sees how to deal with the world. And I think that's why he's much more interested in Russia as a country than he is in NATO, which is an agglomeration of all sorts of different people, you know, from yes. all sorts of different backgrounds uh, mm-hmm. who, are, who are allied only by a sense of, of shared values and, and, a, and a commitment to each other's you know, freedom. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's, that's really foreign to Trump and that's not the way he sees the world, but Putin's w- mm-hmm. worldview is the way he sees the world. Mm-hmm. Well, don't also forget that Putin tried the alliance schemes. He's tried the um, uh, sort of a, a, a Russian-centric EU-type situation um, as a currency union and all the rest of it. And most of them have failed either just through mismanagement, stupidity, or um, just, just sort of it failing in general. Um, the only way Russia's ever really gotten what it's want has been through force. Um, and that's that's the, or that's buying sort of off right wing political parties. Oh, oh that too. Um, but yes, yeah, and, and so like the, the, that's both uh, um, a proof of strength in that he has taken Crimea, he has messed with Georgia. Um, the Baltic states are scared out of their minds. Hungary's just basically folded to him. Um, the Central Asian states are coming under his wing a little closer, but at the same time, um, nobody trusts him. Nobody believes anything Putin would say. Um, everyone expects him to do the uh, the hard power option, maybe in a little more subtle form. They expect to get messed with and all the rest of it. So he, he's backed himself into quite the corner in that he has no few other options left except some forms of hard power, whether it be it's cyber, uh, little green men, or something else like that. Um, like th- th- that That's all he's got. And particularly when oil prices are so low, so it's yeah, it, it, it's it's the inherent problem of being a strong man is that you can only be strong up to a point, and after that you you run out of options, and you can either be an uber strong man or you'll eventually just crumble on your own stupidity. So, but uh, you know, we we've seen this a few times though, like uh, and analyzing Trump and saying he thinks in terms of uh, stereotypes. Putin is a Bond villain, and I, I think that's why um, Trump loves him. You know, the, the, not just stereotypes, but uh, his love of things on TV and, like, the pop culture, uh, or at least pop culture of his age, is how he relates to people, which is why, you know, he would pick people like Mattis, you know, who is the penultimate expression of the Marine Corps, um, and, and Big Master as well being penultimate example of, you know, intellectual army and stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, Putin sort of fits into a nice little stereotype, and so he thinks he understands the world because he sees a stereotype in front of him. Um, and, like, that's the scary thing, because Putin is a KGB officer. <laughs> he's he's not a dummy. Uh, he has done some stupid things and will continue to do some stupid things, but he's not a dummy. So... Yeah, it's it's. Whereas, I mean, most today's problems have really complicated solutions, and yeah. Trump has just shown. We're recording this two days after the uh, American Health Care Act uh, mm. went down in flames. Uh, Trump does not do complicated stuff. He's an executive. He's used to his, yes. his people will deal with the details. Mm-hmm. He yes. signs the big deal. And that's all that he cares about is the optics of the thing. And, and so yeah. to deal with, you know, previous presidents, uh, Obama and Clinton in particular, were really into the details. Maybe not as much George W. Bush, but but not to, <laughs> not to the, not like yeah. this. 
No. Um, and, and, like, this is a perfect example of what Hillary would have been like. She she sweats the details. She wants all the details, and hence why she's a bit of a micromanager and, like, just a, a total policy nerd. Um, she doesn't really convey any type of vision or charisma, but you know once she's there, she's going to do a bang-up job, uh, provided her advisors or her own biases don't get in the way. But, at the yeah... <laughs> There was a really great article today talking about um, sort of uh, businessmen when they get into government, they just think because it's the way they've been done. When you're CEO, you run the show. So if somebody wants something wants to happen, you can make it happen. But of course, in government, there are multiple competing power centers um, all over the place, even within your 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 top echelons, and it just uh, like these people literally don't know how government works, which is why they continue to say you need a business person to make sure government actually works. They, they just literally have no idea about how to run a bureaucracy. They know how to run an, um, uh, an entrepreneurship. They don't know how to run a bureaucracy. Yeah, and the thing um, about... The thing about one, one that's sort of stuck in like 1950s, 1960s type thinking uh, and processes and structures as well. And, um, but he's also, a, like you just said it as well, he doesn't sweat the small stuff in any way, shape or form. And if you don't sweat the small stuff, you literally can't understand what the problem is. Yeah, and and so like I, f- I feel like the Trump administration is a giant counterfactual. Uh, it's a counterfactual in many ways. Uh, mm. One being sort of what would happen if the United States all of a sudden uh, stopped doing a lot of things that that uh, I-, I wished that it would stop doing, but also then stopped doing everything else uh, <laughs> as well. And then the and then the question of uh, people, you know, a lot of times people will be like, blah, 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 the government's so inefficient, you could probably cut a third of those jobs. Well, mm. that might happen at state. So let's, uh, we're about to yeah. find out just how vital those people are. Because, I mean, exactly. Trump's budget is not actually going to get passed the way that it looks because there will be a revolt mm. in Congress and because of the sequester. But, um, well, we'll see. Uh, like uh, healthcare and tax issues are two different things for the internal dynamics of the Republican Party. So yeah. you might sort of end up with the opposite of what's happened um, for the, the Health Care Act because everybody wants their taxes cut and they think that just because they might get $300 back every year from a minor tax cut, um, the fact that the 1% gets an extra $10 trillion, um, uh, you know, that doesn't quite weigh on people as much as losing your health care. Yeah. Um, so... That, that's uh, that's I, I possible, but, see, but the idea yeah. of cutting states' budget by a third, I, I just think like the Lindsey Grahams of the world will just not allow that to happen. Like there just aren't enough votes in the Senate for that sort of thing to happen. So so it won't be quite as bad as you know like ending entire agencies. Like that's just not it's it's not going to happen. But the fact that the president is proposing that it happen just yeah. shows that like I, like he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't understand what state does. And he just sort of uh, as well as the Secretary of State. Yeah, the Secretary of State totally accepted this and said, you know, it's fine. We're not going to be going into any wars. News to everybody else. So let's talk about the fifty billion dollar proposed, you know, mm. give or take proposed uh, increase in defense spending, and Trump uh, loudly announcing that we we're going to have a twelve carrier navy. Uh, we currently yeah. have ten. Um, do, I mean, to me, this sums up everything that I sort of hoped would not happen. Where we would, yes. you know, if we were, if we're going to like, if we're going to stop being the world's policeman and stop doing things like mm-hmm. invading Iraq, the least that we could do is not ramp up our, you know, like what is what are we going to do with twelve aircraft carriers? 
that we can't do with 10. Like what, I mean, yeah. unless we're, we're taking Steve Bannon literally that we're going to be at war with China <laughs> in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, well, never forget that, you know, that China is out there. China is doing some things and the, any conflict with China will happen predominantly in the air and on the ocean uh, or in the ocean as well with submarines. So there is a purpose to a Navy as well as just maintaining the, um, the openness of the international sea lines. I, I'm, I'm like in that's, favor that's of That's the purpose things. of the U.S. Navy. Yeah, that, that's perfectly fine. Now, um, the, the biggest, my biggest problem with like, the, the 12 carrier Navy is the assumption that carriers are the right tool for this um, goal which they unequivocally are not. They, they haven't been a good thing to buy for at least the past 15 years. We've kind of noticed that. And it has nothing to do with land wars. It's just the fact that they are now so uniquely vulnerable to missile attacks, particularly swarm missile and, and swarming drone attacks, that they're nothing more than giant targets filled with 5,000 individuals that will blow up and will blow up very, very big. That's my problem with aircraft carriers. Aircraft carriers are great if you want to attack somebody in, um, uh, say, Africa or the Middle East, um, just because just you need to be able to get there. There's not as many bases as there would be in the Asia-Pacific region. But just the fact that whatever's coming in the Asia-Pacific, China is ready for, and China has been, ready for, has been trying to get ready for it since the Gulf War, um, there is no purpose to all these carriers. You could quite literally get rid of, at the current levels, at least four or five carriers, replace them with something like uh, submarines, uh, as well as my particular favorite, which would be swarm missile boats. So basically take a couple of cigarette boats, put two missiles on them, and uh, you know dump about 500 of these into um, the Asia-Pacific region. And they pretty much can't you know, it's it's impossible to attack because, A, there's so many of them, so many missiles coming your way, and they're so tiny, they're very hard to target. Um, and you could do that for the cost of running one of these carriers for one year, and you'll have 20 years of work out of these boats. Um, when an, an aircraft carrier costs, what, 12, tr- 10, what was it? $12 billion to make, $1 billion to run every single year, and then it takes another three billion to build all, at least three billion to build all its escorts, and it's another billion to run all those escorts every single year. Trump. So what makes economic sense here? <laughs> so it's it's like a strategic and tactical um, mistake having all these carriers in every way, shape, or form for the, just for the Asia Pacific. One of my. Uh... One of my favorite cartoon strips from the it was from the 1980s. It was called Bloom County, and mm. the the strip spoiler alert for those who have not read it. It's a, it's a great strip. It's it's this bizarre. Uh, it's where Opus the Penguin and Bill the Cat come from. You may have seen them. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it's a it's a very bizarre strip, and throughout it, the, Trump was basically the enemy. And mm. at the end of the strip, he buys the strip and fires everyone. And that's the end of the strip. <laughs> and then so tw- 20 years later, after the strip ends, uh, the creator of the strip brought it back uh, as a Facebook only thing mm. just after Trump announced he was running for president. And it starts off yeah. with Opus the Penguin waking up from a 20 year hiatus uh, <laughs> and, and just being like, what do you mean Trump is running for president? I feel like that almost, you know, from from a from a worldview style, that almost describes Trump himself. Like he hasn't learned anything in the last twenty years about like what happens. So like when when you say that like aircraft carriers are 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 you know 
decades out of date. Trump mm. is decades out of date. Like he's yeah. just like it's well, big. It must be good. Like the way he was like driving that truck with that. The, oh god! Not even driving it, but just sitting in the, yeah. the you know the the, the front seat with that face. Yeah. Like that's how he fe- he wants to do that on an aircraft carrier. That's why he wants oh, to do definitely. aircraft carrier. Yeah, now, he he definitely wants to sit under a banner that says "Mission Accomplished." Um, oh. Yeah, uh, which I, I would love if that happens again. Like I, I would love and hate it at the same time. But, um, you know, he's 70 years old. There is no way he's had an original thought in at least 20 years. Like, your brain would literally just stop working at a critical level um, just from old age and inherent biases and all the rest of that. I'm halfway there, almost. (laughs) I don't want to think that Um, I'm halfway to running out of any ideas. Yeah. um, It's more just like you get stuck in your ways. Uh, and if you do have an original thought, it's, uh, you know, I, I know I'm sounding ageist at this moment, but, um, like everything we've been talking about, which is people believing nonsense, people keep on sen- saying nonsense, um, even after one failure after the other, um, there, there is definitely some sort of, um, just sort of what happens when the same people remain in power and have remained in these positions and just get older and older and older. They don't change their mind even though the world around them is changing and uh, the evidence for the effectiveness of what they're saying keeps on saying you need to change your mind and they don't change your mind. Um, So yes, Trump hasn't had an original idea in 20 years unequivocally. Um, The only new idea is maybe how to sell it. So it's the same ideas, he's just selling it in a different way. So, so the very last thing that I, I want to talk about is basically kind of like um, what what should happen instead, basically. And and so we, mm. we, we before the podcast began, we I, I, I we we both looked at this article on foreign policy about what what Trump should do in uh, in Syria, and it was basically it was kind of the same. It was like either withdraw completely. Uh, mm. Put down an enormous amount of troops and, and such and mm. such and all this stuff uh, and uh, uh, you know a massive surge. Uh, keep doing the same thing and f- accept strategic failure or the preferred option doing. I think they called it counter ISIS plus. It was like yeah. doing slightly more of the same thing. So like more airstrikes, but other than 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 that, uh, like. It's so it seems it seems like a lot of the the stuff that we're reading the policy advice that 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 I read is is for Trump to basically do the exact same thing that the policy advice always is and yes. so, so like what I don't know um, for, for, but but also never forget like in that article um, there is only a very small discussion of the political problems that allowed ISIS to grow in the first place which is uh, the Syrian regime. People finally turned against that, but they had really nothing to turn for. They, they knew they hated Assad. They knew they wanted him out, but what were they fighting for? Um, even they didn't quite know that. And that's also the gap that ISIS stepped into because they offered them a grand uh, social contract from which to fight Assad with as well as something to fight for. Um, and then the same thing happened in Iraq the Iraqi constitution and the Iraqi prime minister, um, there was no reason for the Sunnis to support these in any way, shape, or form. ISIS came in and said, we'll offer you protection. You accept our social contract. And they said, yes, Baghdad's that way. 
um, and pointed the way, which is why ISIS gained all the territory it did in such a time. Um, so, and none of the options anyone is talking about in, in that foreign policy article deals with that fact. No one has said, let's not go into Iraq or Syria. Let's, let's stop bombing until a new Iraqi constitution is in order. Otherwise, there's no purpose in what we're fighting. And at the moment, there isn't. There is the destruction of ISIS, um, who's attacked Western targets. But there's nothing to fight for. We're fighting to destroy someone. We're not fighting to build anything. Which means strategic failure is your ultimate outcome. Because there is no, no policy goal for that strategy um, to fight for. You're just fighting for destruction. Put it that way. Michael Davies, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That's a, I feel like that's a great way to end. There's like there's like a million more little things that I want to talk about, but, but that's that's a great way to end uh, and the episode. No problem. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, do you have any sort of recent writings or anything on the internet that you would like to plug for our listeners? Um, not uh, there's a couple of things in the works and that have been sent off, but nothing that's really come out. So. Um, the best one, well, the only one, sorry, was uh, Foreign Policy right before Christmas, uh, Tom, R- Tom Ricks' blog. Um, in particular, the line that I'm very proud of stealing from somebody else, somebody else which was, uh, you cannot death star your way to strategic victory. <laughs> Yes, um, that was that was an excellent piece. I look forward to the the subsequent pieces um, as they uh, as they come out. Uh, you can find the podcast online at joegenie.com slash podcast. That's j o e g e n i dot com slash podcast. You can also subscribe for free in the iTunes Store and on Stitcher and other places where you can find podcasts. You can search for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with another podcast very soon. So long. like a little postscript because there's one more question mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you which was yeah. there's been this investigation so or, or uh, so far into our bombings in Syria and various things mm-hmm. and uh, surprisingly little has been made of the of, of the fact that a bunch of civilians died at you know immediately after a president who promised to carpet bomb people and you know kill people's families yeah. uh, came into yeah. office do you think th- like does it look to you like our tactics in Syria and Iraq have have changed and become more aggressive since Trump took power or or is it too soon to tell uh, i think it's too soon to tell that could also have been like an errant bomb or bad targeting or just the wrong numbers were put in um, or, or even just that um, people could have moved around or something. I, I haven't fo- followed that closely at all, um, like that particular incident. So that, like, there are multiple mitigating factors. I remember the, the Afghan bombing um, that attacked the hospital, um, uh, was it last year or maybe a year and a half ago, hit the Red Cross, bomb, uh, Red Cross hospital. Um, that was just literally um, miscommunication as well as misidentifying the target. So you're never too sure what these things could be. It, they could be a, a looser um, rules of engagement, or it just it could be any number of 
stuff happens type moments or just basic human error. So we'll see what happens. Um, but at the same time, you're seeing from the um, the response to that bombing why it's always a very bad idea to loosen ROEs for bombing that's very high up because things never go right um, with a high-altitude bombing, even with the, the best technology. It just never quite works as well as people expect it or think it does. And the more dense the population area... Um, the higher collateral damage that will occur.